Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Jacqueline Johnson, who sold her company, Create and Cultivate, in a deal valued at $22 million. But before we get there, as you'll hear in today's episode, Jacqueline sold her company, which was heavily reliant on in-person events in the heart of the pandemic. And I found a great article she did with Forbes where she details how she transformed her in-person event business to an online digital experience and how that played a massive part in the acquisition of her company. So I will share that article, which can be found in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. Before we jump into today's episode, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, be sure that you hit that subscribe button. And if you want to help support the show, you can actually do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have the chance to leave a rating and review. It truly helps the show grow and get in front of more people just like you. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Jacqueline Johnson, who in 2012 founded Create and Cultivate, which is a media company that educates and inspires women to succeed in business. By 2018, the business had grown to around eight employees when an acquirer approached her with an acquisition offer for $40 million in an all-cash deal. Now, unfortunately, due to how integral she was to the day-to-day operations of the business, the deal fell through. Now, as you're listening to today's episode, I want you to focus on the changes she began to make to ensure her business could thrive without her. Here to share with you the full story of how she sold her company, Create and Cultivate, in 2020 is Jacqueline Johnson. Enjoy. Jacqueline Johnson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. So excited to be here. Create and Cultivate. How did you come up with the idea for this company? So it's actually a long story, but I'll keep it quite short. So essentially, I started my first business, which was actually called No Subject. It was a marketing events and influencer agency long time ago. And I started that company when I was 23 years old. So really had no idea what I was doing. I had left corporate America after being laid off, started this company, learned a lot of tough lessons, but one of which was I really wanted community around being a female entrepreneur. And when I went online to look for that community, I realized nothing online looked, felt, or spoke to me as a young female founder. And I decided to create it. And that's really how Create and Cultivate was born, was getting together female creatives, entrepreneurs, freelancers, you know, to kind of share war stories, what's working, what's not working in a room, thinking it would be a one-time thing. And then it spiraled out into something I could never even imagine. Now, your focus in the early days was creative uh, entrepreneurs, particularly women-owned businesses. So when I think of creative businesses, I think of uh, designers and writers and photographers and and less car dealerships and manufacturing companies. Was that was that intentional on your behalf because you knew that's where women were starting businesses? Or is it just that you wanted to focus on those segments, which happened to appeal to women? Like, how did you land, I guess, on those, the creative um, community, if you will? I think it was just by nature of the business I was in, right? So I was running this marketing influencer events agency. My background was in influencer marketing for CPG brands, beauty, fashion, et cetera. So it was really started as my immediate network. And then it grew from there into 
all different kinds of businesses, but I think it kind of just started with me. Um, I always say like the first Create and Cultivate was every, it was all people I knew, you know, it wasn't anyone else. And then from there, people started telling their friends and it grew from there. And so what was the business model? How did you guys make money? So we did not make money for the first five years. That's why I always like to tell everyone. It was a complete side project. So I was running the marketing agency and kind of looking at Create and Cultivate as a you know new business lead development tool for that agency, um, you know, a way to kind of get out in the world and and you know meet cool people. Um, so it was really a break even slash loss model for I would say the first five years. But it was great because I was able to create community during that time. Um, so I was building and growing community kind of on the dime of my other company. And then essentially after five years of doing it that way, it kind of took on a life of its own. So brands were coming to us interested in sponsoring it. I was getting emails asking about when the next one was. And it kind of became a company on its own. And so when it became a company on its own and I decided to actually parse it out from that business create its own, you know, LLC or whatever it was, bring on a partner. Um, that's when it started making money, obviously. So it was really a non-money-making entity for the first five, six years of life. And then when I formalized the business, that's when everything changed. Got it. Okay. So when you formalized the business, what was the model, the economic model? Were you monetizing the community through events or was it the classified? Like, take me through your vision for how you were monetizing the community because you built this great community. Yes. So my goal was to not monetize the community immediately. The goal was to monetize through sponsorship revenue. So we focused primarily on brand partnerships and brand presence at the events that we were hosting. We did sell tickets, you know, but there was like a nominal fee just to kind of organize and get people through the door. But my goal was to really not monetize the community until we absolutely had to, because what our biggest value prop was, was access. So access to information as female small business owners, um, to give them the tools, tips, and tricks they needed to go out and create and cultivate the career of their dreams. So the goal was to really monetize the sponsors, not necessarily the audience from the get-go. You know, it's funny, Jacqueline, because this, 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 like the, the back of my neck, the hairs on the back of my neck are going up when you tell the story. Because I had to tell you what I used to do years ago. This goes back 25, 20 years ago or so. I had a, a marketing research company where we used to help very large brands, American Express, JP Morgan Chase, Mar you know, Microsoft, help them to market to small business owners. And I tell you, the number of times I was in a boardroom where they said, what we really need is to build a community. What we're going to do is we're Microsoft or we're Wells Fargo. We're going to build a community of entrepreneurs who can help each other and learn from each other. And we're going to do articles. And I look, literally, Jacqueline, I've seen this pitch 50 times. And every single time they spent truckloads of money and every time... It was a like a complete disaster because it was so sanitized with corporate speak and nonsense and there was no authenticity to it. To see you like create it and actually build it and, and then get sponsors is just such a wonderful sort of moment because I because it's just so full circle for me. So I love this. I, kudos for you for creating it, for bringing in the brands, 
but but owning it because of course Wells Fargo or Microsoft they can sponsor something like this, but they can't own something like this. It's totally not right. It, so c- congratulations, I guess is a long long winded thing. No, yeah. I, I love that because it's so true. And I I on the flip side when I was running the marketing and events agency was in those same meetings you were. We were like we're going to build our own thing, and I was like no, let's go to where everyone is. Like let's not try to like build the stadium. Let's go to the existing stadium and you know where the seats are filled. So, you know, it was one of those things where I think the reason Creighton Cultivate was able to grow such an authentic community was because it was built from an authentic place of like a small business owner building it and having the same struggles and same issues and same problems and knowing what this audience would want to hear, see, touch, feel, whatever, and be part of. So I think that's why we were able to be really successful at it. But it's not an inexpensive proposition. Like when I look at the professionalism, the Creative Cultivate website. I know, I know it's been some time, and you've you've you know, you've you've developed significantly since the early years. But it's a very slick site, and it's not without expense. So, how did you finance the growth? I mean, give me a sense of was it just sweat equity where you're taking time away from the agency to build? Did you did you pump cash in? If you did, like how much cash did you pump in? kind of while you were building the community on the side as a side hustle? Yeah, absolutely. So basically the first, as mentioned, like the first five, six years, didn't really make any money, essentially broke even, was not putting that much cash into it at all. Then when we went out and started it as its own company, I put in $50,000. My partner put in $250,000 to essentially get things moving. Um, And with that money, we really brought on a team. Like that's kind of how it started. So we brought on the team to kind of help us grow and build out what it could look like. From a website perspective, I mean, again, early days, like we were scrappy, like we built everything on Squarespace, you know, we, you know, I luckily had some like graphic design experience, we were able to kind of like bootstrap, but make it look beautiful um, in those early days. And the way that we structured the model was we'd launch our events, you know, six months out, we'd build up that sponsorship, and then we would essentially build our margins based on sponsorship. So we knew how much we could spend on the look, the feel, the vibe, the speaker, whatever of the event based on those things, we were able to really maintain margins. Um, And so we were really lucky in that we grew pretty quickly with very low overhead to start. And it was a cash business, right? So when we were sort of launching these businesses, we were just reinvesting back into the company, back into the company, back into the company. When I, I actually sold my first business. So I sold that agency to a strategic um, and stayed on board for one year. So for one year, I was running full-time Create and Cultivate and sort of helping, you know, with the, um, you know, uh, integration with that uh, strategic partner. So it was really interesting. I kind of took the leap. You know, I had this option to stay and be part of this new agency or go run Create and Cultivate. And I I chose to run, go run Create and Cultivate. Um, so that was my first sale um, of that business. So I knew that there was just too much momentum, too much excitement, too much opportunity around Create and Cultivate. So I, I jumped and went to that. That's helpful for sure. I want to go back to the capital structure. So you had 50 grand that you put in. You mentioned you had a partner. Was that an operating partner, silent partner? Was- silent partner. So uh, more of like a strategic silent partner. She was in the talent world. So in the influencer and talent game. So she helped with the talent stuff early on, getting some of the right people there, et cetera. And we structured it as a loan. So we paid ourselves back um, as soon as the company was able to. And how how much equity did you give that partner 
I mean, was it convertible? Was it a convertible loan note, effectively convertible debt? Or how did you structure it? So essentially, we structured it as a straight loan. We went into the business, I believe it was 60-40. I had 60, she had 40. Um, And we just kind of were like, we did it almost as like a joint venture of like, all right, let's do this and see what happens. And there were strategic services, you know, that she had built in. And then obviously, I don't think either one of us ever thought it would turn into what it turned into. We never took capital after that, though. So the, the only capital that we had ever put into the business was that initial 50 and 250K. And to be clear, you both loaned the company that money exactly. and then you both were able to pull it out eventually, but retained your 60-40 equity split. Was exactly. that the idea? Exactly. Exactly. That's super helpful. You know, I have to give you kudos because I watched a couple of things and I watched you, I think it was you coming on stage at one of your events and, and there, I mean, it's all very slick and, and really well produced, very professional, like nothing like a corporate event. You can imagine like it looked like a kind of a rock show or something and, totally. and out you come and, and these purple curtains part and you come all dressed up and then you have purple cue cards. And I thought this is a woman who ta- pays great attention to detail because the fact that you match the color of the cue cards with the color of the curtain suggests that you've got a, a real flair for both detail as well as design. I mean, give us a sense of like the little things that you did to bring this all together. Like, am I picking up on something that you thought about in advance? Or yes, I'm, I'm a psycho in that way. But I, but the, the way it sort of came about is actually interesting. So my first business, I was working with brands who had big budgets who wanted to do influencer events, right? So again, these are the early days of like, Instagram had just kind of come out, you know, like all these different things. There was all these Instagram influencers who were starting to pop up. And I remember specifically, you know, throwing these events with like the flower walls, the gorgeous food, the amazing vibe. And my sister, who's a wedding photographer in Florida, messaging me being like, God, I wish I could go to an event like that. And it kind of stuck with me like, yeah, why aren't consumer events like that? Like, why is all of the like flair and beauty and cool things and the, and the design just for the like celebrities, the influencers? And so in building, create and cultivate, I was really I really set out to create a premium experience that felt like an influencer event for everyday consumers, small business owners, et cetera. And so I had this notion of like, we don't want to throw a conference in like a gross stale conference room with a sandwich and a plastic, you know, container, like let's make it beautiful and fun and like really reflect what we are all about as, you know, millennial working women. And so that was so important to me. It was like every single detail from when people arrived to people left, like everything was thought through to be a premium experience at a not premium price point. It's such the opposite. Like if you go to an Inc. 5000 event or like a Forbes event, I mean, but the whole thing, and again, I really encourage people to take a look at Create and Cultivate because it, it is it is a really, really exceptional experience. If you look at the website, and you envision, okay, Jacqueline's offering information for startups and women entrepreneurs. And if you look at it, you would not think for a second it was an entrepreneurial, you know, how-to way. It looks nothing like Inc.com or Forbes.com. It's like the antithesis of those. And I've gone to more than my fair share of you know, rubber chicken events where, you know, there's this boring podium. And again, looking at your events as an outsider, they look nothing like that. So again, kudos for you for creating something, you know, zigging where everyone else is zagging in this space. It is, it is quite exceptional. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really impressed with what you created. Uh, it's amazing. 
Thank you. So walk me through the growth from there. So again, I'm looking at this five years to build the community, 60-40 equity split with, you know, you kicked in 300 grand between the two of you and off you go, you start to build these events. They're cash flow positive along the way. If you think about your trajectory, was there another inflection point that a key decision that you made along the journey that you're like, in retrospect, that was a critical decision in our development? Yeah, absolutely. So what was interesting is that the business started to take off. And I feel like there was a few key learnings and mistakes made along the way. Um, we grew very fast in terms of revenue and size, like in terms of revenue and cash flow. We did not grow as fast on the staffing side, which I think was a mistake. Like we needed to actually ramp much sooner in terms of bringing on more team members. But it just was, it was almost happening like so fast that we couldn't keep up. And our business was based on the sponsorship dollars and sponsorship needs of like companies coming in and saying, we want this event. When we launched our bespoke verticals, that's when everything really changed. So essentially previous to launching that, our business model was we throw these events here. are Here's our calendar year of conferences. You can get involved in X, Y, and Z ways. And that worked really well. But what happened was actually Marriott came to us and was like, we uh, just reopened, you know, did million, billion dollar renovations on these properties for the millennial female traveler. We want to get them to our properties. Like, we don't want to go to where you're doing it. Like, we want them to come to us. What can that look like? And so essentially, I was like, well, we can do events at, at your properties. And so that essentially became our bespoke service line where we're like, okay, outside of the traditional events we're doing, we can also do events for brands around what they're looking to promote on their schedule, on their timeline. That opened up like the floodgates of uh, revenue for us. So did you, did you retain ownership to the names of the events yes. or did they it was become a, the property of the sponsor? It's a co-brand event. So it's essentially a create and cult event, create and cultivate event you know, in partnership with Marriott, in partnership with um, Bliss Cosmetics, in partnership with whatever. So it was always a co-brand. There was no white label and we owned everything for that event. That's helpful for sure. Yeah. So that basically opened the floodgates on terms of revenue for us. And again, not the, and those events all free. So our goal was we only pay our early, our community only pays for tickets at Create and Cultivate owned conferences because they're such massive productions and like from an organizational perspective, everything else RSVP, like come join us. And what that did was it built our email list and our community in so many different areas. Cause these events weren't just in LA or New York. These were Miami, Chicago, Austin, um, Nashville. Like, so we're building this massive community across the United States, giving them access to these little tastes of cool events and then upselling them into coming into the conference and actually spending money with us as a business. Hey, our vision for the show is helping you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. What's the opposite of that? It's succumbing to a five-year earnout where the majority of your proceeds are in some future payment that's contingent on you hitting a set of goals that the acquirer sets for you that you have no control over hitting. It's the worst case scenario. How do you avoid an earnout? The magic is getting your company to thrive without you so that you can make the case to an acquirer that your business is not dependent on you, that it can continue well into the future without you calling the shots. 
comes down to building a self-managed company. And we've created a checklist, a set of things that you need to check off one by one by one in order to get your business thriving without you. It's free. Just go to builttosell.com slash checklist. Again, that's builttosell.com slash checklist. Now back to the show. Take me up to the end of 2019. Obviously, something important happened in March of 2020, which I want to get to next. But take me up to the end of 2019 uh, and, and share, if you can, sort of where you're at. You know, number of members, revenue, if you're if you're willing to share. Uh, any anything kind of proxy for how big you are at the end of 2019? Yeah, it's um, 2019. It's our we end the year. 14 million in rev, 4 million EBITDA, like living our best lives. <laughs> and um, we were going, so I should actually take you back to 2018 because this is like an interesting point and obviously very relevant to what you're saying. So 2018, at that point, I think we're about almost two years, year and a half in, we're eight employees, we're still new and we get approached to be bought. So what's interesting is that we start getting some inbound interest in acquisition um, from some media players in the business, super smart, all strategics. Um, and again, it was early for us. Like it was, it was very early. We were small, we were scrappy. You know, I, we were not set up to sell in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, just from like, we had no CFO, you know, it was a whole thing. And it was interesting though, because at the time my partner, the other half, you know, 40% of business was selling her company. She had a different business, was in the process and said, you need to meet my banker and like actually take this seriously and see if these, these guys are legit. And so we ended up starting a process in 2018 very early, but there was just so much interest. It felt stupid not to explore it. So we brought a banker on, um, an advisor. They helped get all of our you know, financials in order. Um, and we basically ended up getting five, six LOIs. Um, it was a really exciting, it was kind of crazy, right? Because it was just like early. We didn't know this was going to happen. It was amazing. And I, it was, again, my first experience having selling a company with that type of a process. Like the strategic you know, deal I did with uh, my agency was like, one-on-one. -on -one. We had known each other a long time. It was like a very clean transaction. Like it was very easy. This was a bunch of people, a lot of cash, a lot of money, a lot of people in the mix and a lot of excitement. And I think it was definitely my first rodeo in understanding, um, you know, how these, how the deal flow works, how it all goes down. We ended up getting two, we got down to two different offers and we ended up going with, and I wanted to go with the more sure, the, the stronger fit for the business and also the sure bet in terms of getting a deal done. They had cash in the bank, you know, all these different things. It was a public company. Long story short, and, I, you know, again, speaking of experience, the deal fell apart in the 11th hour. We were, it was signing day. Like we had done the diligence. I had picked out my office. You know, it was, my life was changing forever and it fell apart based on a few different things. And my learnings were very interesting. One was, I think, the deal fell apart for a couple of reasons. One, they said the market, which we all know is bullshit. Um, but two was the fact that they felt I was too integral to the business. So it became this question of, essentially, if I got hit by a bus, what were they buying? And this is what, 
essentially made the deal fall apart. It was a nightmare. It was like Christmas. It was like <laughs> December like 22nd. I had given up our office lease. I had to go find a new office lease. I had told some senior employees because it was done. It was a nightmare, John. It was like a true, like my lawyer, my lawyer felt bad. Like he was like, I've never seen a deal fall apart this close to the line. Our banker was shot. Like it was a, it was a true nightmare. But in retrospect, it was a great learning in a lot of different ways. I immediately knew one, I had to hire a C-suite. Um, I had to get people in the room that weren't me. I had to start, you know, kind of parsing out my responsibilities and how integral I was to every single thing that had happened. So that was the first thing I did, uh, which was a game changer for the business. Um, and two was I had a taste of what it could be. So I also got very ambitious about selling and actually getting a deal over the line, but also getting all my ducks in a row and started building based on like what they had been looking for and knowing what they had wanted and like, what were the problems and what were the good things and really doubling down on what that could look like. So we spent all of 2019, just pedal to the metal building to go out for a sale top of 2020. So Back can, I put, to, can I stop yeah, you there and ahead. ask you yeah. a couple of questions? What was the offer on the table in 2018 uh, in terms of... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's... I still cry about it, but it was it was like a $40 million cash offer. Okay. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It was a really <laughs> good deal. I mean, I want to die thinking about it sometimes, but also like the reality was, you know, it was, it was early. It was too early for us. It was. What was your revenue at at the time? Sorry. What was your revenue at at the time? 8 million maybe. Um, and EBITDA? Probably two or 3 million. Got it. So this is like a 20 times EBITDA. It was a crazy of offer. Yeah. It, and it was based on all the competition too. So it was a lot of people competing and, and doing that whole thing. And that was like a whole other animal. And, um, and it also was based on me becoming a C-suite executive officer at this public company. So there was a lot tied up in that. There was some stock as part of it too, which had a lot of value. It was liquid. It was like a, it was a very like nuanced and complicated deal. And it was honestly, it was an exciting deal for me. I was really excited about the possibility of working at a public company. I was also excited about, you know, obviously giving a lot of the resources to create and cultivate, but it was, it was very early, you know, and, and there was also this thing of like, well, what if, what if, what if, like, you know, kind of floating around. Um, and sometimes when offers are too good to be true, they're, they are, you know, I think that's just the reality. And, um, it was definitely devastating, but it, it definitely lit a fire in some ways as well. Um, and also that company came back around many times, uh, which was very interesting as well. And it was very nice to say no. Um, and our new CEO is actually from that company. So I stole her away from them. So we have kind of a joke now about it. Um, kind of like, we're, they like to say we're the ones that got away. But um, <laughs> I mean, I think I lost out more in that situation. But um, yeah, it was brutal. I mean, I think coming back now in 2019, we, you know, did everything right. You know, top of 20, 2020 Q1, our strongest Q1, 5 million in rev, um, you know, came out like guns blazing. And then as we all know, <laughs> COVID. Oh my gosh. I want to get to COVID, but just before you go there, 
you mentioned in 2019, you you put your head down and really focused on getting the business ready to be sold before you were too early. One of the first things you did was hire a C-suite, like a, a second in command. Uh, I understand that. What else did you do to get yes. the business ready to go to market? We really focused on recurring revenue. So that was a common thing that kind of kept coming up is like, yes, we had all these sponsorship partners. Yes, they were year-long sponsorship partners, but we need concrete recurring revenue in some way, shape or form and diversification. So what we focused on was we, and this will play very well into the COVID story, we launched a membership in 2019, top of 2019, which was a digital and offline membership for our members to upsell into gated content, you know, more premium content and premium experiences offline at our events, perks, all sorts of things. That went really well. You know, we we ramped up to 5,000 members pretty quickly. Um, and obviously that was that recurring revenue model that we were able to, to pilot. We also launched our, um, and doubled down on our podcast, our book deals. We did licensing deals and product. Um, so we were able to diversify out revenue away from just the events and the sponsorship dollars to make it a less risky uh, revenue mix. So 20, end of 2019, Ballpark and just give me the pie chart. So you had five thousand members paying you how much? Uh, it was a hundred dollars a year. Uh, five thousand, fifty thousand, five hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. I'm really good at math. Yeah. As we can <laughs> tell. So you had five hundred grand in member revenue, and then you had what on top of that? Like what? Like how? Like how did you? How did the five million dollars that co- the first Q one of twenty two thousand? What was it made up of? For twenty, yeah. So that was, um, I would say probably still it was seventy percent sponsorship and events, and then thirty wow. percent was. But we had gone from like ninety ten to seventy thirty, which was impressive. And so the thirty was, you know, licensing revenue, podcast ads, digital revenue, all of those kind of mixed, and then the membership revenue as well. So take me back to March of 2020. You hear that the NBA has just canceled its season. Where are you when you hear that news? What is the first thought you have? So what was really interesting for us, I mean, we were lucky in that we had gotten you know a lot of our revenue under our belt already. We were gearing up for our South by event. We do an event at South by every year. We had you know over 2 million in revenue tied up in that event. Um, you know, I think we had 8,000 RSVPs to that event. Um, and we're kind of just like hearing rumblings. Like it's like a little bit this, a little bit that. South by comes out, makes this big announcement. Like we're going, we're doing it. We're staying strong. Do not cancel your events. And so we're like, oh, good. Okay, great. Like, you know, we're still feeling really good about it. And then I remember the city of Austin called a press conference and we were like all in our conference room, you know, all, I think it was 25 of us watching it. And they're like, we're shutting it down. And I just knew in that moment that we were about to unpack an event that was supposed to happen in three days. It was a bloodbath of everyone. And it was hard, right, for everyone because it's like the caterers that we had hired, they're small business owners. The rental, everyone was fighting for cash. And it was it was just a nightmare to unpack. But I remember very specifically going into the um, boardroom with my um, CFO and my GM. And I was like, all right, like, we're going to pull back on this. We'll cancel Coachella. Let's focus on summer. We'll be back by summer. Blah, 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 blah. And like this is like where my head's fitting. And I just remember my GM being like, I think it's gonna be like years. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I just, I, I just think it's gonna be a long time. And I was like, no, I was like, absolutely not. Full steam ahead. 
And we spent the next two weeks like unpacking South by and like kind of thinking. And by the end of like March, early April, I was like, we have to make a move. We have to do something. And so we basically were able to transition a ton of our sponsorship dollars into this digital event we created. We put together our first digital conference called Money Moves May, first weekend of May, 2020. And we had over 10,000 people attend from 50 different countries. We had, you know, done a ton of revenue. We had amazing guests. Like we were the first people to really do a unique digital conference with, we had, we had launched a Slack channel where attendees could chat. It was like the Slack channel had over 50,000 messages exchanged. It was insane. Ad, we picked it up. Brand, we picked it up. LA Times picked it up. Like we were just lucky because like we got there and like did something and our membership rev spiked. Everyone joined to be part of the digital membership and get access to these events because we made it free for the digital members. So we were lucky because we moved fast and pivoted quickly. Um, And what ended up happening at the, essentially to give you context of where we were at, in March, we had our advisor geared up. We were in talks with a lot of people. Everyone put everything on hold as soon as this happened in terms of like the acquisition process, including us, obviously we were like focus on the business. Number one, get, you know, get it moving. Um, and you know, I feel, I felt really, um, defeated in a lot of ways because I, we did get a bunch of like opportunistic fire sale, you know, cat or all stock offers come our way. And I was like, no, no. Like I was like, we are getting cash for this business. We are doing well. Like I felt really strongly about that. And I was like, I don't care if I have to, you know, keep going for another two, three, five years. Like this is a real business and like we deserve a, a good exit. And so really pushed through that um, until the end of the year. And so basically around Q3, everyone was like, this is our new normal. We got to go back to spending money. We got to get back to business. And so we were lucky in that we ended the year with the same EBITDA as 2019, just less revenue. Wow. So this is the 4 million in, in EBITDA you referenced. Exactly. So we, wow. because digital events were so highly profitable and we were able to maintain the pricing that we had for physical events. Um, and even though that was, you know, less volume in terms of revenue, we were able to, you know, end the year highly profitable. Unbelievable. So where does it go from there? When did you actually start having the more proactive conversations with the ultimate acquirer? Yeah. So Q3, we got a bunch of actually real offers that were really Q3 good. of 2020? Yeah, of 2020. Um, you know, we looked at them. We were, you know, kind of interested, but like also kind of like PTSD from everything that had happened and, you know, kind of just thinking about, you know, where we wanted to go and what we wanted to do. But what I realized was, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like, we need to bring on a partner to like scale and grow and build at this point. The world has changed. Digital is now everything. If we're going to scale digital products, that's expensive. Um, like we just knew like we had to make a move in some way. Before we thought about like potentially going out and raising money and like what this could all look like. And we ended up, we ended up getting a few offers, um, some strategic, some family offices, but the, the deal with Corridor was really good because they, one, knew exactly what, you know, we wanted in a deal. They also could help capitalize and, and grow the business in the future. They had had experience operating in membership and event businesses. Um, and I would also be able to retain ownership, which I wanted to do. Like, I wanted to stay on and help. But they were also open to me bringing on a new CEO, which I knew I had wanted to do. I mean, I'd been the CEO for 10 years, um, had been through obviously a lot of ups and downs, but I also knew we needed someone who had expertise 
in the digital arena who could help scale like from that perspective. And also let me do what I'm good at, right? Like I love doing the founder stuff. At that point I was doing the podcast, but I was a deeply operational CEO at the same time. And so someone that I could bring on as a partner and continue to do the things that I was good at, you know, whether it's sales, you know, cause I was the only person on the sales team, which is wild. Um, and so bringing someone on to help, you know, actually scale and grow and make me not the bottleneck. Um, and they were open to that, which was rare having gone through that first, you know, kind of experience. So um, it felt like the right offer for us. It was the right deal. Um, it also gave me a second bite at the apple for when the company, you know, is able to grow and build and recover, you know, from, from, you know, 2020 in some ways. Um, so it felt like the right, the right move. So explain, explain all that because there's so much to unpack there. I want to, I want to kind of take this in, in, uh, in, in chunks. So you have this offer. Just walk me through how the conversation started. Like, did they come to you with the term sheet? Yes. And and so, what was what was the initial sort of term sheet that they offered? Yeah. So we had um, a few different offers, as mentioned. So we knew the valuation, um, which, in my opinion, was still low based on everything. But obviously, given the market and everything that what was did happening, you think it would work. I felt like we we should have been like in the 30, 35 range for evaluation, but I also so that, understood all the market nuance. It was an event business. There were so many variables that go into that as well. But um, what was, we ended up landing on $22 million of valuation. And what got negotiated was the structure of what that could look like. They knew cash up front was extremely important to myself and, and my partners. Um, and they wanted to do right by us in that in that regard, which was great. Then they also wanted to make sure, like I obviously was incentivized to stay on. So part of my, um, you know, part of mine was a rollover. So it was cash and rollover, right? So for my partners, they were bought out completely. I was bought out um, majority of my shares, and then I rolled over some of my equity, and then I have cash incentive for um, the next three years of like what an earnout would be based on revenue and EBITDA. Got it. So the $22 million was the cash payment or cash value, if you will, yeah. of the business of which you took up, you, your partner took her share and then your, you took a portion of it and then part of it you rolled. Exactly. If I'm getting that correct. Yep. And then you, in addition to that piece of equity that you still maintain, you also have an earnout component that if the business hits certain thresholds in the future, you stand to gain from that. Exactly. That's helpful. The earnout is it tied to EBITDA revenue? Like, what are the metrics? It's a mix of both, um, and then there's a look back clause, which was really great because essentially, what is a look back clause? I've never heard of that. So basically, what it means is if you don't hit those goals in that year, but then you outperform in year two, they'll 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 roll it as a look back at the end of three years of did you hit the cohesive number that we were looking to do? Which, given the market was a good thing because it was unpredictable when we were closing this deal. I mean, it was December, 2020, top of Jan 21. We were like, I don't know, like the numbers were based on kind of a mix of what had happened. So it, it was a, it was a good negotiation because at the end of the day, they were like, we don't like those, the revenue numbers, if we were doing events would make a lot of sense. If we're not doing events, it's a little bit more challenging. So we had this look back clause. So given that if in 2022, which now here we are, we are doing a ton of events we're able to kind of look back and, and make up for 21 where it was still a little bit of a mix. Got it. What was the most contentious part of the negotiation? Uh, I would say 
the most contentious part of the negotiation was definitely on my partner's side, um, mostly because um, the non-competes. I, one of my partners, so essentially we ended up, um, my partner ended up giving some of her equity away to some other partners as well. But one of the partners in the company was um, Irving Azoff, who is a massive businessman. He owns Madison Square Garden. Like he's a big deal. Um, and he was a silent partner. But when you're doing an, a non-compete on an events business <laughs> with him, it doesn't, makes sense. So that got a little like contentious, I think. And, but at the end of the day, everyone understood, like, he's not going to go create a women's conference, <laughs> you know, like, what are we talking about? But I, I understood on both sides, like, they're like, this is standard for a deal, but it obviously got a little bit complicated in those moments. But I would say that was probably the most contentious piece. Like, I think in terms of a negotiation, it was actually a really fair, I want to say negotiation. I think the most, the hardest parts of it were the diligence. It was, very intense. It was, it was essentially like we would, and I still joke with the PE firm, like it was diligence of a billion dollar company is the way that they approached it. Um, so it, it was, um, as my banker said, a proctology exam. Um, and it was, it was brutal. It was very, very challenging, especially because the business has been around for a while. So it's like, you're digging back for receipts, you know, and, um, you know, kind of having to figure out a lot of that stuff. So that was definitely probably the more challenging piece. Yeah, I wonder how did you stick handle it with your members? I can see two two schools of thought. On one hand, getting a forty million dollar offer and then that exploding and then getting you know a twenty million dollar offer. I mean, that gives you just oodles of street cred, right? You you are now not only your market, but you're you know the hero of your market, right? You are you are the ultimate street cred. You have the ultimate in street cred. There's a little part of me, however, also wonders if I'm a freelance photographer and I'm I'm striving for eighty thousand dollars in revenue. Like, maybe I don't identify with Jacqueline anymore. Now yeah. she's so big and so like I, I'm just trying to create my little business over here, and she's off talking to whatever you call him. I don't even know who Ivan Irvin Isoff is, but I'll, I'll take your word for it that he's a big deal. But now you're playing in these circles and these millions of dollars. Maybe she's not for me anymore. Like, did you think that through at all? Yes, definitely. Um, we were very um, specific about the way we announced it. We, I, we announced, I announced it personally. It was in the B2B press. But we never made consumer facing announcements. It was, I think it would have been too confusing, but I did get a lot of messages like, are you still involved? What does this mean? Like, how does this look? Um, and, you know, I was able to answer those questions, obviously. But I think for me, I really have dedicated my whole life to helping other women make money and build businesses that they're excited about. Like making money is great after effect of that. But I think, you know, now I run a venture fund, I invest in women, I, I do a ton of mentoring and I think it's really important. But the thing that was most interesting to me was when the deal closed and it got announced, I had about 10, 15 women, very successful women with real businesses call me and go, how did you do it? How do I sell my company? And I realized like, Sell, selling your business, like people think it's just like someone emails you one day and is like, I'm going to pay you a lot of money for your business. And sometimes that is how it happens, but it is a business in itself in selling your business. And I, when I told people, I'm like, well, you got to get a banker. You got to do this. Like you got to do this whole thing. And then you get an M&A lawyer. And they were like, wait, what? Like no one had told them 
about this. And a lot of these women are bootstrapped, obviously. So it wasn't like that they had like ventured, you know, breathing down their neck to sell. So it was really fascinating to me. And so now I'm very obsessed with helping women sell their businesses. Like, because I'm like, here's what I did. Here's how I would do it again. And so I think for me, it's like, yes, maybe I'm not as relatable to the person who's running a smaller company, but I like to be somewhat of that big sister where I can say, listen, like you too can sell your business. I never thought I could sell a company. Um, And I like to be as honest about the process as possible. I think a lot of people hold their cards close to their chest. They don't like to talk about it, but I think it's really important to talk about because I think it opens up the door of opportunity for so many other women to be able to go do that as well. Well said, indeed. Are you up for a lightning round of a couple of quick questions yeah. before I let you go? Let's do it. Okay, these uh, just require a one or two word answer if you want. What was the? Sl- I mean, you you uh, you went through the ringer with this, so I'm sure you you have an answer for this one. What was the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of selling your company? Oh God, there's so many. Um, I alphabetize them. <laughs> I think like one was I had a CFO of one of the offers who I had dinner with a million times. Basically, try to talk me out of it. He was like, why are you selling your business? Like, you're not going to do well in a corporate environment. Like, really was like so negative. Like, I don't know if it was a tactic to kind of get me to say, yeah, you're right or whatever it was, but it was super slimy and weird and I hated it. This was a CFO of an acquiring company that was trying to buy your business. Basically saying, why would you sell? You're going to hate it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was this like reverse psychology, I think, tactic that really backfired, I think, in the end on him. Oh my gosh. What was the biggest mistake you personally made in the process of selling your company? We can go back as far as 2018 if you want. Oh man. I mean, I think, um, I think one of the biggest mistakes I think I made was I, and this is like previous to this, but I think I should have taken money off the table sooner. Um, versus putting all my eggs in the basket of selling, which it ended up being a good thing, right? Because the business was, you know, very profitable. But I think I wish I would have like thought more about my liquidity earlier than just the sale, if that makes sense. It does. It does indeed. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the selling of your company? I mean, I would say the lowest point was definitely 2018 when they pulled out. I think my whole body, I like, I, I saw black. I couldn't, I remember driving home. Also, they made me drive to Santa Monica. I lived on the east side of LA at five o'clock to do the signing. So then I was stuck in two and a half hours of traffic, just like sitting there like, I can't believe this just happened. So it was a really dark, dark drive for me, for sure. (laughs) Okay, so what was the highest point emotionally you reached the process of selling your company? Definitely the closing meeting was really amazing. I... um, uh, everyone, you know, had a lot of really great things to say. And then I immediately, I, I closed the deal. And then I interviewed Diane von Furstenberg for a podcast and I got on, I was like all giddy and excited. And she's like, Oh, you're, you have so much energy. And I was like, I just sold my company. And she was like, what? <laughs> and I got to talk to Diane about it for a while, which was really cool and kind of a unique experience for sure. I bet. I bet. I bet. I bet. Indeed. Was there anything you turned to a book, uh, a, a speaker, a conference, something, maybe your own website to help educate you on the process of selling your company? You know, I wish I had done more in that vein and in that research. I think it was really the women around me who had also sold their companies that I got the best advice from, um, who were able to give me really good insights into what to look for, what to look out for, good deals, bad deals. So it was more around the network that I had. 
Last question. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy to commemorate the sale. What did you buy? It's so funny. I, I feel like everyone asked me that question. I was like, God, I don't really know. I mean, I guess I would say, I mean, it's, it's a little delayed, but I think I, we bought a house in Napa, um, which has been really amazing and like um, such a good respite coming out of such, you know, obviously being in Los Angeles. So I guess that would be my my prized possession. Awesome. That goes up in the top 10 trophies for sure. Yeah. House in Napa Valley. I think that's probably <laughs> top 10 trophy. I am so grateful for you sharing this story with us. Uh, Create and Cultivate is the website. If people wanted to reach out and, and introduce themselves to you, is there a, a good medium to do that? Are you a LinkedIn or more Instagram? What's your... I'm all of it. Yeah. LinkedIn is always great. Instagram's great. Any of Any of the above is great. Great. So we'll put all of your uh, profiles in the show notes at builttosell.com. Jacqueline, thanks for doing this. Thank you. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between John and Jacqueline. If you did, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode, then share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel would enjoy listening to today's conversation. For show notes, including definitions and links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the article I mentioned at the beginning, be sure you visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know of someone who would be a perfect fit to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.